Hello. Hello. How are you? Hi. Good to see you. You too. Nice to meet you. Yes. Uh, thank you. So we're very blessed you're here to join us for this little mini series where we can, you know, virtually online express some of these thoughts on how we're feeling and um, how we're, you know, feeling connected as artists. And I'm just going to take, you know, 30 seconds to uh, tell the people who you are and and then we can uh, invite you to welcome yourself however you like. And then we'll do this thing. It's about 15 minutes. I want to value everybody's time. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. My name is Tommy Franklin, uh, creator, co-host, co-creator, co-host of Weapon of Choice podcast. And um, I actually want to I want to type in beyond the gender. Type in the Thank book you. for everybody to order. Yeah, I just happen to have copies around me at all times, so order it. <laughs> Out now. All right, I'll post that and pin that. And for those of you who don't know, see, this this technology thing, I mean, I'm not old. I'm 36, but... I mean, I think Instagram Live makes it, like, incredibly difficult to do anything, so it's not <laughs> All right. So Beyond the Gender Binary, uh, Alok's book is out now. Um, if Alok would like to... It comes out on June 2nd. Oh. Pre-order it now. That's why I didn't receive... That's why I didn't receive mine in the mail yet. Because I would... <laughs> awesome. Pre-order. And um, Alok, do you want to tell them about the book drive real quick? Sure. So I'm raising... Uh, 5,000 copies of Beyond the Gender Binary that we're going to be donating to LGBTQ young people, especially in states that are being targeted by anti-trans legislation. So on my website, you can both purchase a copy of the book for yourself. We're shipping globally as well as a copy that's going to go to an LGBTQ young person. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. And I will. Oh, technology. I love it. So just to let everybody know a little bit, um, Alok uh, goes by the preferred gender pronouns of they, them, is a gender nonconforming writer and performance artist. Their eclectic style and poetic challenge to the gender binary have been internationally renowned as a mixed media artist. Alok uses poetry, comedy, performance, lecture, drag, sound art, fashion design, the dopest fashion design. Uh, self-portraiture and social media to explore themes of gender, race, trauma, belonging, and the human condition. And Alok is the author of Femme in Public and the soon-to-be-out, but you can pre-order, Beyond the Gender Binary. And in 2019, they were selected as one of NBC's Pride 50 and Out Magazine's Out 100. And they have presented their work in 500 venues in more than 40 countries. We're amazed and grateful for Alok's work. And just go to Alok's website if you want to learn more. And we're here to ask... Alok uh, inspires me to dye my hair uh, at least once a year. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. I really feel like during quarantine time, so I'm struggling because I can't be with my hairdressers. So my hair is just going to be, it's going to be messed I'm, I'm thinking about making the big chop. I haven't decided, but we'll see. Is it, is it fun to just even imagine the big chop? I did one last year in June, and it was thrilling. Because I had the longest hair I'd ever had, and then it was just removed. But mm -hmm. the good thing about being Indian is my hair is so thick, 
and it grows back so fast. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why Indian hair is so comfortable. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Well, that's, well, I'll look forward to the next, the next transition because this is the most human era of transition perhaps ever. <laughs> so true. Um, so uh, we're, we're just glad you have, to have you here to kick off this uh, series of artists coping in COVID. And uh, I'll kick it off to respect time. Um with some questions. I'm wondering how the uh, pandemic is affecting the way you see your authentic self in your future work. I think the pandemic is affecting me tremendously, um, economically, emotionally, socially, creatively. I think I have more clarified purpose of what the role of a poet should be during these times. Um, We live in a political economy right now that's designated certain forms of labor as essential and certain as non-essential. But the kind of calculations that are being made is that humans just are creatures that need food, shelter, and all that is incredibly important. But mental health is completely lost from that conversation. I want to not just live. I want to not just exist. I want to thrive. And I want to feel beautiful and good and happy and just. And I believe that everyone deserves that. And art for me is fundamentally about mental health. It's about creating the space for people to feel things, uh, sometimes difficult things, but to work through them. And so I think that now I have this kind of clarified sense of purpose under quarantine. I have to create poems that celebrate and are an affirmation of life in a political climate of profound death and anguish. And to celebrate life, we also have to insist that the people who are dying did not deserve to die and lived enormous and poetic lives. And so I see poetry now more than ever as an argument for the meaning meaning of every life and an insistence on the beauty of every life. Mm. Yeah, insisting on it instead of saying, oh, well, that happened, you know? Wow, yeah. Um, it really, off the jump, gives us a lot to think about on, on, on being forthright with our, being forthright with our compassion, right? Um, mm-hmm. And practicing compassion as a mode of living. I think people want to focus on compassion as a compassionate act, mm-hmm. but I'm actually less interested in actions as I are and as I am and selfhoods. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like living a compassionate life is I think one of the most dangerous things to do because empathy in this country is often punished and people who care are persecuted. But I think that what poetry and art allows me to do is to maintain my perpetual woundedness and mm. to recognize that every wound in me is an invitation to community to collaboration, to intimacy. So why would I ever want to be healed if their healing is numbing myself? That's not the kind of healing I want. The kind of healing I want is where I can still feel everything that I feel, the sadness, the rage, the grief, but also the joy, the delight, the wonder, the, the, the brilliance. And so I think that what I've been really thinking about at this time is we live in such a discompassionate government that 
is so crude. It doesn't give a it doesn't give a shit, frankly, about so many of the people that matter to me. So how can I argue against that? How can I create language and images and ideas that argue for a compassionate relationship with all the things in this world that are deemed disposable? Mm. Well, I really, I really thank you for that. I really wish you and Nina Simone could have met <laughs> and had a conversation. I really look up to her. Um, and, you know, so, you know, we're on social media, Instagram, consumption of all kinds of art forms now is at an all time high. Um, how would you like, how do you imagine or how would you like creators to feel more appreciated by the people who consume and claim to love the art? but sometimes forget to love the artists themselves? That's a really great question. I think that we live in this really dangerous time where art is separated from the people creating it. And it's important to root that in kind of a history of museum culture where it's enough to just have the artifact from the indigenous tribe, but it's okay if the indigenous tribe has disappeared, right? And where actually objects come to matter more than real people. And I think that's something that a lot of us who are oppressed understand is that sometimes our, our genius and our contributions are taken from us and uh, we're just seen as kind of like when you sift out something, we're seen as the remains that you toss apart. And so for me, treating artists with compassion looks like who are the artists in your life that you are really committed to their work and supporting? Because we can't just perpetuate this myth that like people are just going to create and make it happen. Like, no, so many artists I know right now are thinking about having, having to quit because they just don't have enough money. And it just breaks my heart because I'm like, if we had a different relationship, like a kind of community patronage where we're like, this person's work really matters and I'm going to invest in them and I'm going to support them and rally behind them. Um, I want to see that kind of commitment to our artists. And I want to see us uplifting our artists like we do our politicians. Like every electoral cycle, I'm so confused because people rally so hard for political candidates, but never for the artists. And I'm like, but artists are actually doing so much of what these candidates are doing in terms of like creating rhetoric that galvanizes, inspires people. But because that mode is legitimated, and because that support structure is entrenched, people just don't even question. But I'm like, give me even half of that energy to your favorite musician. Give me half of that energy to your favorite poet. And they're going to continue to make work that is going to keep you alive. And what I mean by that is like when we're heartbroken and we're like, how the hell am I going to make it till tomorrow? There are 10 artists that I know I can listen to and I can weep and that helps me get through it and to think that i can just expect that for free is really not right like we need to have a different relationship with how we're consuming art mm. but then again i get the, i get the point that individual people are also economically struggling right now so a lot of people say to me like i really want to support artists but i just don't have income myself and that's why i also feel like we need to learn from other governments and the ways that they're doing arts funding so in the crisis berlin actually designated millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, I think, that was specifically for artists who are struggling mm -hmm. during the crisis. And that when we look at places like the United Kingdom, there's robust funding infrastructures for theater, whereas 
artist in the United States, the only way to make it as an artist is to be a freelancer. And I, I constantly am like, we need more arts funding in the United States. And that should be a non-negotiable. Why is it that arts funding is always the first thing to be cut? Is because artists are actually saying the things that the government doesn't want us to be saying. We're saying you you are worth you are worth more than this. Mm. Yes, thank you. Uh, I mean, even I needed to hear that because I'm over here. I got an artist grant due tomorrow. Who knows if I'll finish it? <laughs> artist grants, though. Oh my gosh! You're like, how do I narrate my entire life? <laughs> Well, I mean, and, and, and like here in Minnesota, we have like the best arts artist grants funding right. in the country. And it's but it's like there was an emergency grant where 400 people applied in for 500 bucks and 5 percent of the 400 people got it. It's like, come on, right. come on, you know, come on. It's just ridiculous. And then it, it fosters competition when there needs to be collaboration. And I feel like that's what a lot of these arts grants end up doing is they have good intentions, but then they end up creating more festering more dissent and that's why if we had more money which there is because i think we need to reject people always like well how do we fund that i'm like well how did you find trillions of dollars to bail out corporations please pray tell me that there's always funding when it comes to certain priorities but then when it comes to actually funding things that matter to our communities like artists then the pot is just dried up Mm. And we need to call it. We need to call it a bluff. This has to do with your priorities. This is not to do with impact. Mm. It has to do with what you prioritize. Yeah, I mean, they probably that 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 lack in arts funding. They make it so it becomes political, so that we get tired of it and give that up, and then revert to what you said—the entrenched politics, the the traditional stuff. So, what is? Um, I mean, day day to day, like. As a creator, how what's been something that's helped you navigate your day to day as a creator? So I'm really lucky that my book is coming out in June because it just gave me something to do. <laughs> so it's like I have like a product and I have like a schedule around the product. So it's like, what press am I going to be doing? Like, how do I get this set? So it gives me kind of purpose because I think for the first few weeks of quarantine, I was just flailing. I was like, all of my gigs have been canceled. What is the future of live performance? Am I even going to be able to be an artist anymore? And I was just struggling because I think, you know, like when you, when your means of income comes from your art and it's something like this happens, you just kind of panic. But then I really started to remind myself, like, what am I good at? What, what strategies of survival, what strategies of creativity have I developed in my life? How do I channel and funnel into that? And so that's what I've really been doing. And I think also I've been really reconnecting with what was joyous about writing. I think that when I was performing a lot, that's a different part of my brain where you get like instant validation. You're like, wow, people love me. This is great. Okay, cool. But writing is really tortuous because it's an audience of one and you're looking at yourself and you're like, Am I even, like, can I even do this? Like, am I even good? And so reconnecting with my writing practice has been deeply confrontational because I'm, re I'm realizing, like, I have so much to say that I've not allowed myself to say. And so now I think that's what's mobilizing me is, like, oh, look, write the things that you've been meaning to write for the past decade. How can you use this moment as a way to say these things, these painful truths? Because there's no better time. There's no better time when when you 
have to sit here and face it because I'm the queen of distraction. Like I will literally come up with like a zillion things in my schedule so that I don't just sit down and actually encounter what I write. Mm-hmm. Like I love the admin. I love the emails. I love the like, I love the like, because it keeps me away from actually sitting down and confronting my truth. And I think I'm kind of calling my own bluffs because I've traveled the world telling people embrace your truth. And then it's really hard for me to embrace my own truth. So I'm trying to do that work, I guess, right now. is, And the way that that structures my schedule is I can only write at nighttime. It's like a hangover from being an emo kid when I was 12 years old. What's up? So I literally like can only write after like 11 p.m. So my hours just become totally restructured because I'm writing from like 11 to like 4 in the morning. And then I wake up at like noon or 1. And so then I'm just like, I'm this kind of nocturnal art life. Um, but I, what I've actually found is I've developed a rhythm in that. And so I think what I really advise to a lot of artists who might be listening is you have your own rhythm and don't let anyone shame you for what you have to do to make your work. For some of my friends, it looks like, Hey, I'm going to ghost on you for like a month as I write this thing. But what I actually believe is if we value art, we have to trust artists processes and we can't like nitpick and be like, well, you need to produce this much by this week. It doesn't work like that. We're channeling. And for a lot of us, we're actually channeling ancestral work and we're channeling energetic work. And that doesn't just come naturally. It sometimes takes time, especially when you've developed so many defense mechanisms to receiving it. Yeah, I, lo- I love that you're, you're when you're speaking to what works for you, that's all we need to do is kind of voice what works for us. And th- therefore, we don't have to be prescriptive, say, hey, this is kind of a personal mantra for me. And to back up just for a second. Did you ever experience like a consistency of fear of slowing down for yourself? 100%. That's my biggest stillness was my number one trigger in the world. Mm. Because growing up, as I did in a small town in Texas as a trans person, I felt trapped. I felt like I couldn't get out. I felt like my entire life I was just going to be quarantined around people who didn't accept me and were fundamentally harassing, harassing me and abusive to me. And so for a long time in my life, I've always associated mobility with freedom like being able to like go in and out touring is so good for me because i'm like okay cool i can leave like airports are really sources of comfort for me because i'm like i can get out like i need to be able to get out when i'm in rooms i notice exit signs like i i just as a response to my trauma i always am thinking about what can i do to get out of the situation so having to stay put in one place is something i've not done in probably over 10 years. <laughs> like okay. this is probably the longest time I've stayed put in my adult life. Mm-hmm. And it is like everything that is terrifying for me, quite exhilarating because as an artist, I get to think about what's coming up for me, you know, <laughs> like what, like, whoa. And one of the things that I'm really realizing is we have to learn how to shed skins. The survival mechanisms that I developed when I was a young person were amazing for me as a young person, but they no longer work for me as an adult. And now I have to reintroduce new habits and new ways of relating to my life and work that are actually rooted in who I am now, not who I was. Mm. And so what I've really been allowing myself to do to do now is I need stillness. I need quiet. I need space. And that doesn't have to mean containment and being trapped. Like there's a way to, re- to there's a way to develop a new relationship with things that formerly traumatized us. And I think that's a lot of what I've been writing and working about in my own practice is like, 
hey, actually stillness feels good for the first time because I've developed mechanisms to cope and mechanisms to create. And so in this stillness, I actually might be able to write that book that I've been putting off for six years, you know? Like I actually am developing the ability to be with myself and that's really important to me. Mm, thank you for that. Well, congrats, congratulations on that stillness evolution. Um, it's been 15 minutes. I don't want to, you know, I just want to check in. You feel okay? I just, okay. yeah. I, I just want to, um, before we go, I want to ask you if there's any COVID pandemic related community um, cause that you're um, very passionate about at the moment or that you want to direct anyone's attention to whether it's in New York or in your hometown or. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to uplift the work that Ali Fournay Center is doing in New York city. It's a shelter for LGBTQ homeless youth and they've been struggling with funding. And so a lot of folks have been trying to fundraise for them. So check out the Ali Fournay Center in New York city. And I also want to use this moment. If any of my fans from my page are watching this shout out weapon of choice podcast, for creating spaces for artists Whoa. during quarantine to have these conversations around practice. So please follow Weapon of Choice Podcasts, listen to Whoa. Weapon of Choice Podcasts, and check in with their programming because they're often highlighting a lot of artists who are typically not accepted or regarded by the mainstream. And there's so many black and brown artists that we need to learn about and support. So make sure that you tune in to the work that Weapon of Choice Podcasts is doing. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh Thank you for that love. And yeah, I, I want folks to, in 10 years, we're 10 years removed from wherever they were, to come back and hear you speak about uh, how you've moved forward in 10 years. And I just want to create this repository of stories and voices that I think, again, aren't going to get the rallies, right? Um, you know, or not yet, but one day. So, uh, Alok, thank you so much. Thank you for everybody. Thank you for your work. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in and have a good week, everyone. Thanks, Alok. Of course. Bye. Bye bye. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, that is, I guess you could say, episode one of Artists Coping in COVID series. Uh, we are back the rest of the week at the same time. 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tomorrow. We'll be talking to Sahar uh, out of New York. And uh, Thursday, we'll be talking to Bronte Velez. And we will be talking on Friday to April K out of New York as well. So uh, if you follow Weapon of Choice, you won't miss a thing. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, what have you, because there's a lot, there's three seasons of interviews that are long, long form interviews. So where we go really, really deep. So, you know, check that out. We all got a little bit of time on our hands when we go for walks. Um, catch up with uh, Weapon of Choice podcast. I promise, I promise you, you love it. I promise. Okay. So see everybody tomorrow who can tune in and uh, holler at me uh, if you have any questions and we will, we will see you soon. I'm out. Peace and love everybody.